0: Continue today with the series we started on the two trees of Genesis. Uh, I'd like to wrap this up today or tomorrow, next week, probably next week. I think I have more here than I can cover today, but I don't want to prolong this. I want to get to the point, uh, rather than getting it so strung out, we forget what we're doing uh, because there is definite meaning and symbolism in those two trees. I made the statement last week that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does symbolize the law. Because, as Paul said, I would not have known sin but by the law. So it is the law that defines evil, that defines what sin is. To the point that they finally broke the law, they did not understand sin. And they didn't even know that there was such a thing as a law, really, because they had known nothing but good. There was no evil, no negativity, everything was good in life. But they did break the law, and we saw that they broke the first and great commandment, as Christ termed it in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six or 7, and that is idolatry, or putting themselves and Satan above God. So that was their main sin, the first and great commandment. And I talked somewhat about Satan's great sin and how that is the sin that he committed. He put himself higher than God Almighty. So everything else hangs from that one. God himself said, or Christ said, who was God, this is the first and great commandment. So commandments do have varying degrees of importance and intensity shown by Christ's own statement. Because if you break that first one, you automatically break the rest. Because all of those hang on that one. Even the Sabbath. Because it was a memorial of creation created by God. And if we break that, then we have broken The first commandment, which is idolatry, destroying that which God set apart, set aside as important. So, with that background, I started into something to show that the law is not evil. Because if they conclude, people, and many have, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does indeed represent the law then breaking that law caused death. Therefore, they throw the baby out with the bathwater and claim that the law is therefore no good because it brought death. Now explain. It is not the law which brings death. Even Paul said the law is holy and just and good. It's not evil. It is good. Now, people who try to say the law is done away generally quote Paul. That's where they go. And we'll see that that is a problem a little later on. But Paul said, didn't say it was evil. He said it was holy. How much better than holy is there? It's good. That is the antithesis of evil. And just as opposed to unjust. We're not going to go all into Romans 7, and I have a reason for that. I'm quoting from Romans 7 when I say that. I don't want to go to all the Scriptures in Paul, but a couple of statements that Paul made are so very, very plain. But it is the penalty of the law that kills. The penalty of breaking the law is death. Well, that is very clear. But I want to get to the bottom line. Let's cut to the chase about the law, because ahead of us comes a major test, and you need to know, and know that you know, a reason for the hope that is the resurrection, hope of the resurrection that lies within you, as Peter said. Exodus thirty-one seventeen says that the law is a sign between God and His people. If the Sabbath is a sign, it is then a signal or a test of who God's people are. And those who would say the law is done away probably hate the Sabbath more than any other command, at least in terms of the way they would look at the law. They wouldn't tell you that lying or stealing or murder is, is a bad thing, but there should be laws against those. But they just shouldn't be God's law. (laughs) But men can make those laws. But when it comes to the Sabbath, they stumble all over it and go somewhere else. Now, to preface this, let's go and to, to drill this point home. Let's go to Isaiah 58. I want to spend a moment here because... We discussed earlier that the problem in Eden was a breach of relationships, a breach of relationship between God and man, and between man and man, or man and woman in that case, but godly and human relationships. That was the problem. It created a distance. Their iniquities cut them off from God so that they hid from Him, and He had to come looking for them, and He was not happy with them. So... There was destruction to the relationship. Now, there was a breach then that was created, and all men have sinned since, and in that sense, in Adam, all have died, because the penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin are death, as we saw, and therefore, if we sin, we will die unless somehow we are redeemed from that penalty, won't we? there is still a breach between God and man. Even with the New Testament church, God said He has turned His face from us because of our sins. He will forgive them. And one day, He says, and I think it's Zechariah 3, and as a cloud in Isaiah fifty no 44, or 43, whatever it is there, So he's going to forgive those and turn his face back and shine on us. We've gone over those scriptures many times. But obviously, there is still a gap between us and God, right? Let's see what this says. Now this chapter we read often on Day of Atonement. And it is a prophecy. Keep this in mind because it has a great deal of bearing on what we're talking about today. Because it doesn't matter, does it? if people can find a way to do away with the Old Testament and most of the New Testament so that they don't have to keep the law of God. But this is a prophecy of the end time, and it's not even a prophecy of the millennium. It is premillennial, as are all these prophecies. They extend on into the millennium, but they apply first to the church as a spiritual body at the end that God will walk through as a witness to the world. Because some say, and it's been said, that while well, we don't have to keep anything now, but the laws will be kept in the millennium. Do I even need to address that ludicrosity? But, whatever. This is a prophecy for now, and it says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet... And show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. That's how he opens the chapter. Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. So he said, show my people how they are breaking the law, a prophecy for the end time church. And they seek him, they use his name, and so on. I won't go through all of it. And then he says, even their fasting is for selfish reasons, to get something. And then he mentions down in verse 7, what the real, well, verse 6, let's start there. Here here is God's reason for fasting. Men have their reasons. Penance, uh, to get something from God, done in selfishness. So he says, is not this the fast that I have chosen? Now, here is the real reason for fasting, or the reasons, to loose the bands of wickedness. What is wickedness? It is the opposite of righteousness, which is doing what is right, which is keeping the commandments of God. Those things which are right and just, holy and good. To undo the heavy burdens. What causes you to have heavy burdens? the works of the flesh, following the things that appeal to human nature that get you in trouble. That creates a burden. If you understand God, it creates a breach between you and God. Because you're not doing the things that He says, Christ lived without sin. And He said, we're to walk in His footsteps, 1 John 2.6. Do as He did. Well, if he didn't sin, that means he never broke the law. And yet people say the law is done away. It doesn't matter if you break it. Is that so? Doesn't it make a burden? And to let the oppressed go free and you break every yoke. What is the yoke that is on our neck? It was when they broke the law in the Garden of Eden that the yoke... The penalty, the curse of sin came upon us. That yoke has to be broken. He tells us in Isaiah 52, to break the yoke from off your neck, to quit laying down and being walked over by the system we live in, and to sit up and take notice. So, fasting is to help break the yoke of carnality and sin that is on our necks. Now, notice the next part of this. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry and that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house when you see the naked, that you cover him and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh or deceive yourself about yourself? Hide what you really are from yourself. Now, what is that statement in verse 7? It's Matthew 22:36 through 38 all over again. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it that you love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying here is that an end time prophecy, if you're to fast and fast with a purpose, it's to put aside the self and learn to give and serve others. Christ quoted this in Matthew 22. Now notice that if we fast with this in mind, with this purpose, not to get something for ourselves, but to learn to turn and give to others, then shall your light break forth as the morning. Now that means the yoke is gone, the burden is gone, if you keep that commandment. Now, what did he say about the first commandment and the second which is likened to it? On these hang the law and prophets. Everything that the law and the prophets have to say goes right back to those two principles, those two commandments. They are a summary. The first four, the great one toward God, the last six toward man. Okay? Okay. Then shall your light spring forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily. So health, well-being, a good mentality come from keeping the second of those two commandments. So, loosing the bands of wickedness and heavy burdens and the yoke and everything else that we suffer from has to do with the commandments of God. Isn't that clear in here? And your righteousness shall go before you. So keeping, he uses the example here of the second of the two laws, keeping that will cause righteousness. So righteousness is tied up with keeping that second commandment. The first goes without say. But it is our relationship with man that has a breach, not just our relationship with God. But he says in the next chapter that our iniquities cut us off from him. So he addresses our relationship with man in chapter 58, and he specifically uh, talks about our relationship with him, first verse of chapter 59. So he's talking here about those two commands that Christ delineated there in Matthew 22. So it has to do with righteousness. And the glory of the eternal shall be your rear guard. If we keep the commandments, the glory of God will follow behind us. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, what does it do with our relationship to Him? Then shall you call, and the eternal shall answer. Our prayers, and having answers to those prayers, hinge upon the right reasons for fasting, and the right reasons for fasting primarily include keeping the commandments. God does not hear sinners. I forget, I can't bring right quite to mind where that comes from. God does not hear sinners, that is, people who break the law. So people who break the law and say it's done away with, can pray to God and he will not hear them. Clear? You keep the law, then you shall call and he will answer. You shall cry and he shall say, here I am. Is that beginning to heal a breach and a problem? Do you like it when someone you know gets miffed with you and won't speak to you? Or will only speak angrily to you? No, you don't like it at all. There's a breach in the relationship. We become sullen, we become pouty, we become angry, and sometimes we scream. We don't like it when things are shaken up. When the breach is there. We like peace. We like everybody to be happy, don't we? Keeping the law of God is what produces that. Then he'll answer, you shall cry and he shall say, here I am. If you take away from you the midst of you, the yoke, the burden of sin and breaking the law. The putting forth of the finger and speaking vanity. Putting forth the finger means pointing at others and their faults and sins and raising yourself up in vanity thinking you're better than they are. Didn't Paul say in Thessalonians that we should esteem others better than ourselves or higher? Alright, and if you draw out your soul to the hungry, different way of saying what he said up in 7, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall your light rise out of obscurity and your darkness be as the noon day. You'll always be in a sunny, happy situation if you learn to give and serve others and love others as yourself. Now, God only says you have to love Him more than your neighbor. You only have to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You have to love God more than that. Love Him with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. What is sin? What is love? Sin is the breaking of the law. Love is the keeping of the commandments. This is the love of God that you keep the commandments. 1 John 5.3 Alright, let's go on and see what else there has to do with, with keeping the law that's good. And the Eternal shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought... Hasn't he promised us that if we will obey him and serve him and seek him, that he'll see us through the trouble that's coming, and make fat your bones, and then shall you be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. I have gone to springs in the mountains that I knew were springs, and maybe I would go in July or August and they'd be dry. That didn't impress me much because I was tired, hot and thirsty. I like them to always be running. When I arrived, drinking out of a cow track, if there's a little water left, then it just didn't suit my purposes, although I've done it. Now, notice verse 12. And they that shall be of you, those associated with you, if you do these things, shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to live, dwell in. Here we have the breach created in the Garden of Eden by people who will keep the commandments, healing that breach and bringing God and man and man and man back together. What a glorious job, opportunity, calling, responsibility, that is. That is what you have been called to do. To heal the breach between man and God and between man and man. Now notice a key ingredient of this. We talked about a summary of the law up there in verse 7. He turned. A specific law here, the fourth of the commandments, having to do with the first and great commandment, that is, putting God ahead of everything and having no idols. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, the fourth command, part of which is toward God, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the eternal, honorable, honorable, And shall honor Him. Keeping the Sabbath honors God. If you don't keep the Sabbath, then, inversely, you dishonor God. Now, if you dishonor God, is that going to repair the breach between you and Him? Now, we know from the book of Revelation, and I won't go there, that the mark of the beast includes not keeping the Sabbath. You are going to be tested on it again. It was a test in the Old Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is a test just in front of us, right down the road, not very far. Not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. So if we keep the Sabbath the way God intended, it will focus on Him and godly fellowship, not on the things of this life. Then, now here's the reward, then shall you delight yourself in the eternal. Now I'm still a little afraid of God, Not because of awe. Now, I I fear Him in that He is the great Creator, and I stand in awe of that. But I have a little bit different type of fear. It's a conscience problem. Because I don't always keep the law the way I ought to. I don't always put God ahead of everything. And I don't always love my neighbour as much as I love myself. That creates a wrong kind of fear. (coughs) You shall delight yourself in the eternal. You know, when you when you are in a position where you delight in the eternal, you have gotten past a bad conscience. What causes a bad conscience? Sin. Breaking the law. So what he's saying here is if you'll keep these laws, then life will become a delight. Instead of a burden and a yoke. And I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. And it says this, then it goes into chapter 59. It isn't because God's short-armed that He can't bless us. It's because our iniquities have cut us off from God, our sins. He says iniquity, and then He says sins in verse 2. Have hid His face from you that He will not hear. It is sin that destroys the relationship. So... It is not the law that is evil. The law is wonderful. The Sabbath law is wonderful. It will lead you to healing the breach between us and God. So will loving your neighbor as yourself heal the breach between you and man, and then ultimately with God as well, because he says, How will men know that you're my disciples if you love one another? That's the way this thing is set up. So the Sabbath is a very, very important part of healing the breach between man and God. It's a test commandment. Now, I want to move on. Let's look at some clear things. It is the clear things that are important for us to first consider if we're going to truly understand. What did Christ say directly to His disciples? To His students? What did He say to those who would be the leaders of His church? It was an organized religion. People hate that word, organized religion. Well, most aren't very organized, and they're poorly organized. But done God's way... God is the author of organization instead of confusion. And he did set leaders, whether you like it or not. That's what he did. Some of them have not been good, and it's given us bad attitudes. That's another story. Let's not go there today much. But these were the people who would lead his church that he would found. They would also, he said himself, be the head of the tribes in the world tomorrow. Now, these were some people who needed to get it, okay? Now, they didn't understand much until the Holy Spirit came in Pentecost in Acts 2. They didn't quite get it yet, right? They would ask dumb questions. They wouldn't understand, and He would go over it again and go over it again, and they still didn't get it. Now eventually, once the Holy Spirit came, it said it would teach you all things and bring to remembrance the things that He had told them. So the things He was telling them, as they were disciples and students, were the things they would need to remember later if they were to run the church properly. And the Holy Spirit would come, they would get it, and then they would remember those things so that they could teach and preach properly, okay? That's the point there. Some will dismiss what Christ told them because He says they were just learners and disciples and He hadn't died yet and therefore what He said to them didn't make any difference. Poppycock. You don't even know that word. Herbert Armstrong learned it from somebody way back in his background. It's a hundred years old. Older than I am. Balderdash. Stupidity, inanity. We just quoted a Scripture that said, you need to remember the things that I've told you all this time, right? Don't don't forget it and try some legal way of saying, well, that just applied to them, and he was talking to Gentiles and unconverted disciples, but after he died, then we were released from the law. I don't think that's what that Scripture just said. I think it said that you better remember the things I told you. So, what did they learn? I think that we need to go back and see what he taught them and what they then later taught others. Because their purpose was what? To enter into the kingdom of God and to have disciples who would come behind them and learn from them so that they would enter the kingdom of God. That's what the church was established to do. That's why I'm here today. You want to live eternal life and partake of the tree of life, and you want to live forever in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, you wouldn't put up with all this abuse. Because we, if there is no kingdom of God to be in, are of all men most miserable. We fight ourselves every day to do what is right instead of what is wrong. And that's hard. It is not easy. Paul said he fought himself. He crucified his flesh. The things he didn't want to do, he did. And the things he didn't want to do, he didn't do. And he was disgusted with himself. But only through Christ could he be saved from that. The forgiveness. The removal of the penalty of sin. The removal of the guilty conscience because Christ paid for that. Doesn't mean you could go ahead and break the law. No, you could be forgiven by Christ. So what did he tell them? I want to go to John 13... We will go over this in nearly a month now. to Passover. over. I can get back to John 13. Now, let's set the scene here for a moment. This was the most solemn evening of the time that Christ had spent with these disciples, these men, to become apostles. He was on his deathbed, you might say. Uh, he was about to die the next day to be taken this very night. He had taught them for three and a half years, and now when he had explained to them that they would continue to take the Passover, but there would be a change of symbols, and not just the blood of lambs or goats, but his blood would become the drink, and his flesh Broken and beaten would become the food. So he explained a change in symbolism here. Not a doing away with, but a change. And this is a summary, if you will, of all the things he had told them in the last three and a half years. This is the heart of the matter. This is the crux of his teaching. He was absolutely, shall I say, dead serious this night, about to die. So it was very serious what he had to say. This, in some ways, is more important and more serious even than perhaps the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that was a sermon he gave to his disciples. He went up on the mountain away from to preach to his disciples. And the multitude came there in Matthew 5. They heard what he had to say, but it was not directed at them, it was directed at his disciples. So the things he said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in that first real teaching session I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it, to fill it up, to raise it, to empower it, to make it even more holy, even more binding, even more important. Than it had been in the past. And he explained that. You used to look and lust, now to, I mean, you used to do the sin, now even to look, to lust, to con- consider, to contemplate, to ponder sinning is now forbidden to you. He raised it to a higher level, a greater plane. You could think about sin all you wanted in the Old Testament. As long as you didn't do it. Now you're not even supposed to think about it, but bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Try that someday. See how much fun that is. They say, he came to de- I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to do away with it. I came to destroy it. No. He explained what he meant. He raised it to a higher level. And he never once broke it. Live sinless. So that was the beginning salvo of his teaching, was that the law is very, very much still in effect. Get it, fellas. But they didn't quite get it. So now, just before the Holy Spirit was to come and he was about to die and leave them, he rehearses and summarizes the whole thing all over again. And I'll tell you what, here he gets even stronger than he did there. Let's look at it. Verse 33 starts speaking to them, little children. Yet a little while I'm with you; it won't be long. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, I'm leaving. You can't come with me. So here are my parting words. Here's what I have to say as the last reminder. What did your mother used to tell you when you left the house? She'd tell you about six or seven things. Okay, Mother, okay. But then the last thing she would say was the most important. She'd give you all her rules, and then and she might include the most important one in the first or second one, and then at the end, she'd holler as you headed for the car, the last instruction. The most important thing on her mind was what she said last to you. Have a good time but be good, or words to that effect. So, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, is this a new commandment? It's not really new in the sense that the Ten Commandments... Show love toward God and love toward man. We understand that. But he had given them a new outlook on it. He had summarized it for them. He had said, the first and great, and the second is likened to it. On these hang all the law and all the prophets. These summarize that. That was something new to them in Matthew 22. He goes right back to that here. This is a new look at the commandment, in other words just as he'd given them a new look in Matthew 5. Don't even think about it, as opposed to don't do it. He made it even stronger, not looser or weaker. So here is this new perspective, that you love one another as I have loved you. How much did he love them? He was just about to go be beaten and crucified and killed for them, for me, for you. That's how much He loved us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that they might not perish but have eternal life. God wants us to partake of eternal life, the tree of life. Have we yet? No. You are not eternal yet. You have not partaken of that. You have the Spirit of God living in you, but you have not been changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and you're not spirit. You're still flesh. Therefore, you have gotten near the tree of life. You are preparing yourself to partake of it, but I'll show you later, you haven't yet. Or you would be immortal and eternal. Our judgment is now, and judgment is ultimately upon all men, to judge whether they will be given opportunity to partake of the tree of life. And we're going to see that you will not be given the tree of life unless you keep the commandments. It will not be given. That's why Adam and Eve were put out of the garden, and a cherubim was put there to guard the way, so that they in their state of sinfulness... And the breach between them and God could not end up in eternal life for them in that condition. It will only be given to us when the breach is healed, when the sin is all removed, when we quit sinning. That will be granted. Now let's go on and see if he explains what he's talking about here. Love each other of you. That is a tough assignment. It is tough to love someone else as much as you love yourself. To do anything for them that you would do for yourself. People ask you to do something If you've learned a proper serving attitude, in most cases you'll be willing to help. But sometimes they might push it beyond what you would be willing to do for them that you would be willing to do for yourself, right? We're all that way. By this shall all know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. That is the ultimate witness of whether we are the children of God or not. And that is the amount of love we show to one another. Now, let's put that in even clearer, plainer language. That is a summary of the last six of the Ten Commandments. On that, and the first and great, Hang all the law and all the prophets, the whole Bible, as we shall see. So, men will know whether we are the children of God by whether we keep His commandments. That is the inference here. And if you don't believe me, hang on just a minute. And I'll show you that in his own words. When Peter asked a question which is not germane to our study today, uh, let's go on down to verse 14. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, didn't we read in Isaiah 58, a prophecy of the New Testament church, and especially the end-time church, that if we keep that second commandment, and our relationship with men, then it would heal the breach between us and God and between man and man. That it would cause him to then hear our prayers. Isaiah knew what he was talking about, or at least what God inspired Isaiah to say was true. I think Isaiah understood it. Isaiah 58 has an application right here. And then Christ says it in so many words. If you love me. There's a big if. If you love me. Now, a lot of people say they love God. A lot of say they love Jesus. I'm here to tell you, not me tell you, but Christ will tell you, that if you do not keep His commandments, you do not love Him. You may have emotion, but it is not godly love. And human emotion will not get you into the kingdom of God. Godly love will. If you love me, keep my commandments. What did he tell the young rich man in Matthew 19:5, who asked, What shall I do to enter eternal life? Keep the commandments. And he said, which? And he started telling him, the 10 oh, I've always kept those. Well, alright, give everything you away to the poor and come and follow me. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want money? Give it to the neighbor. That's showing love to your neighbor as much as yourself. And he went away sorrowing. He wanted his money worse than he wanted eternal life. He wanted his money worse than he wanted to follow God, so he broke the first and great commandment. That's as far as it needed to go. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you do keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. So, receiving the Holy Spirit has to do with what? Keeping the commandments. God does not give His. God gives His Spirit to them that obey Acts five twenty nine. Obey what? The commandments. He does not give His Spirit to those who do not keep the commandments. So anybody says, well, I have the Spirit, or I'm in the Spirit, or I have the Spirit, in all sincerity, if they don't keep the commandments of God, they do not have the Spirit of God, according to the Word of God. All these people out here that say they're in the Spirit or have the Spirit, do not if they don't keep the Sabbath and the rest of God's commandments. And they will not be in the kingdom of God unless they repent, turn from their sin, and keep the commandments. If you will enter to life, keep the commandments. How plain a statement can you make? There's no prevarication or equivocation. It's just plain, simple, and direct. Paul wasn't always that way in his writings, was he? That's where people get confused. They go to Paul instead of to Christ. And they get confused there, and I'll show you why later. All right, let's move on down. Verse 20, At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you and me, and I in you. He that has my command. It keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. If you want to get close to God, if you want God to reveal Himself to you, what do you have to do? This is healing the breach, isn't it? Getting close to God again, when man had been separated from God in the garden. So, keeping the commandments is the key to healing the breach between man and God. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil is so very important if you want to enter into life. And I'll show you before we're done with this series, right at the end, a very plain statement that ties the two together so directly that it cannot be denied. They can be ignored, but not denied. He says again right here, who loves Him? It's the commandment keepers. No one else. Verse 26, speaking of the Holy Spirit again, The Comforter which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, if you keep My commandments, shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. I already quoted that, but it's here. Um, one of them is Matthew seven twelve. Let me run back there and read that to you. Maybe I already quoted it. Matthew seven verse twelve. Sometimes I get ahead of myself. Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Hmm. Same thing he said in Matthew 22, 38-39, verse 40. And here in chapter 5, verse 17, while we're here, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. And he explains, as we already covered. So let's go back then to the book of John. John. Let's go down to chapter 15, verse 12. I'll skip through this, just hitting the highlights. Well, let's see, verse 10, let's get there. Uh, Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. He says it again. Does He say things over and over to emphasize it? Does He say it over and over because it's unimportant? Why does He say something over and over again? Well, he does, in this most serious of talks he had ever had with them. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. So if you want to have a relationship with God like I do, then you keep the commandments like I did. Sound like he's about to do away with them to you? He's about to die. Everything that was going to be done away was going to be done away shortly, within 24 hours of this very speech. Does it sound like he's about to do away with them? No. He's about to pay the penalty for breaking them. Because he knew they had all sinned. And that every one of us afterward would sin. And therefore we needed a sacrifice that could cover sin. But it doesn't mean that the commandments that create sin, were done away with. Well, the commandments don't create it, break in them does. Their breaking it is what creates the penalty. These things that I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So keeping the commandments sin has to do with joy. sermonette was about joy. If you're going to be joyful and happy, you've got to keep the commandments. You break them, they eventually will break you, and you will die. All right, he says it again. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Not just in death, but in a life of service. We lay it down every day for each other. Hopefully. And that brings us joy. It's fun to give. It's fun to make others happy. It's fun to bring them something that brings a little happiness into a sometimes dreary existence. Those things are good. You are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. His friendship has to do with His commands. He will be a friend of yours if you follow His commands. He will not be friendly or a friend of yours if you disobey it. Now think about it. If there's an individual that you would like to be friends with, but they dismiss, disregard, don't like virtually everything you say, disagree with you on maybe every opinion you've got, how good of friends are you going to be? Is it easy (coughs) to be friends (coughs) with someone who disagrees with you at every turn? No, they're disagreeable. You consider them unfriendly. Distant. Not close. That's what God is. You keep my commands, I'll be your friend. Called Moses his friend. <coughs> Alright, let's go on. Verse 17, These things I command you, that you love one another. Um. Uh, <clears> he <throat> said He'll guide you into all truth in chapter 16, verse 13. I'm about to strain my voice here. I'm not angry. I'm just intense trying to get this across because nearly all Christendom does not understand this at all. These are the words of Christ Himself. Let's see. Verse 33, all these things he's saying, he says of, verse, of chapter 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. A breach creates a lack of peace, a void of peace. Healing the breach, fixing the problem, brings peace. Between you and a neighbor, a friend, husband or a wife, a child, and between you and God. These things have I spoken to you. That in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Tribulation means forces pulling and pushing all different kinds of directions. Turbulent. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The world did not lead him into what? Sin. That is the biggest thing you can say about Christ's life on this earth is he sinned not. He lived without sin. That is brought forth in the Bible many, many times, isn't it? And we are to walk as He walked, to do as He did. So He walked without breaking the commandments. He is our prime, number one, head-over-heels example of holiness, righteousness, good character, relationship, friendship, oneness with God, isn't He? If there is any... Uh, Example to follow. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, people say about somebody, he's my. Oh, well, forget it. And my what? My well, mentor is one word. Uh, it's not what I had in mind, but icon. Example is still not quite the word, but uh, that's all right. It's just my mind. It's gone. Role model. <laughs> role model. If there's any role model, it's Christ. Now the other words were fine, but that was the one I was missing I couldn't bring, that's what frustrated me. He said, He kept the commandments. He said he did. Keep them as I did. Doesn't sound to me like he's about to do away with them. You know, the only thing that died on that stake was our sins. And him. His body and our sins. The commandments weren't nailed to the cross. He was. And His blood dripping out on the ground is what removed the sin. didn't remove the knowledge of sin. We still need to know what sin is, don't we? What tells us that? The law. It's a good thing. It tells us not... See, breaking the law... De- cause them to depart from God. It caused them to come under the penalty of death. Keeping the law moves you back in the good graces of God and takes you to Him. Paul called it a schoolteacher, a schoolmaster. So you go to school. What does a schoolteacher do? Hopefully, teaches you how to read and write and do all those things that will make you educated so that you can get along well in the world and get along well with people. A school teacher is a bad thing. Now, a third grader might say so. An eighth grader might say so. Don't want to go to school. No. A school teacher is there to educate you, to teach you, to help you. Now, if the law was a schoolmaster that brought you to Christ, what was it doing? The law was healing the breach that breaking the law had caused. So, the law is what brought you back to Christ. That's what Paul said. That's what people say that it's done away with, use as their example. The law is what healed the breach and brought you to Christ so you could be one with Him. Now, let's do away with it. Shoot it in the head. <laughs> Does that make any sense? It was a good thing that fixed things, so you then get rid of it because now you have Christ. But what did Christ do? He kept the law. Oh, wow. All the law did was bring you back to the state that He is. And the times that you had broken it are forgiven by His blood. Does that mean then that you continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! Now there's a clear statement from Paul. Do I sound like a fanatic here? Almost acting like one. This is serious business. This is the most serious talk he ever had with them. We've got to get it. Now, I'm preaching to the choir. I understand that. You understand this. But you're going to be tested on it again. You better know and know that you know. We'd better know what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, what the tree of life is, and how to get there. And we better understood, understand that breaking the law, the first and great was the main one they broke, caused death. And then the law suddenly became obvious That if you stay on this side of it, there will be good. If you go on that side of it, you will die. And they had just gone on that side of it and they had come to the point of death. They would die as a result. So the law doesn't kill you. Breaking the law and the penalty that comes with it is what kills you. Keeping the law will bring you life. God will not give His Spirit except to those that obey. If you will enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, does that do away with grace? No, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we certainly need the blood and the grace of Christ to forgive the past sins so that our law-keeping will mean something. But He is not going to forgive you if you continue to break His laws. We'll see that very clearly. Now let's see, let's go down verse 21 of verse chapter 17. He wants us all to be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Through us, the world will believe that... God sent Christ. And that is, if we love one another, that's how they will know. For keeping the commandments. That's how they'll know. The witness in the end time of the two witnesses and the witness of the end time church of God is going to be a witness of the law of God against the lawlessness of this world. That is the witness but God's people Are of God. You want to know what the message of the two witnesses is at the end? It's that God is God, and if you want to be like Him, you've got to keep His commandments. It's that simple. If you don't keep His commandments, plagues will come upon you. The glory which you gave me, verse 22, I've given them that they may be one even as we are one. What made them one? What made it so that there was no breach between the Father and the Son? We already read it. He kept the commandments. That's what made them one. Now, these men were not yet truly one as the Father and the Son are one. That's why He keeps telling them, love each other, which is the fulfillment of the commandments. And if you love me, that means you are keeping the commandments. That's what creates that oneness. Christ never once, ever, broke the first and great commandment. I don't mean while he was here 33 and a half years. I mean ever. He always looked to the Father as the one authority The one to honor, revere, respect, and fear, and love has always been that way. And it never caused any rift, any problem, until a created being broke that first and great commandment. And he was already immortal and couldn't die. So God made us capable of dying, so that if we would keep the first in great commandment, and the second which is likened to it, we could enter into life because he would know that we would never, ever break those commandments again. You see how big this is? How big what happened in the Garden of Eden was? Why those trees are so very, very important? And what the tree of the knowledge and the good of good and evil represents? The law isn't evil. It's what tells you what's good and what is evil. It makes the difference. It defines what is evil. They didn't need that definition before. They knew good. All they didn't know was what causes evil, and breaking the law caused it. Therefore, keep the law so evil doesn't overtake you. Isn't that simple? Why do people get it so messed up? Because they want to. They don't want to obey God. They want to do what they want and have eternal life anyway. So they will not listen to the preponderance of Scriptures. They'll twist a few out of context and read into them what is not there to have their own way. And they hide themselves from their own flesh, as we read about in Isaiah 58. I'm just getting started. Well, I think that's enough in John right here. Let's move on. Uh, I want to go to the book of Hebrews for a couple of quotes. Now, this was probably written by Paul. Uh, there's no absolute proof of that, but uh, most scholars seem to think that, and I think by the way that it is written, it's fairly clear to me at least that it it seems to be the case. But let's go to Hebrews uh, 4. Now, this is written by an apostle of God, whether it was Paul or someone else, in any case, it was canonized as part of Scripture, and therefore is God-breathed and is correct. Okay? It's profitable for doctrine, for inspiration, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now here is a summary, if you really grasp it. Hebrews 5, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, Christ Himself, that is passed into the heavens, Emmanuel, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our profession. We are professionals. We are to act professional. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He can feel our infirmities, our frustrations, our sicknesses, our illnesses, both physical and mental but was in all points tempted like as we are. Any temptation any one of us has ever had, he had also. Yet without sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. So he says our high priest can feel what we go through because he had every temptation we do, and yet he never sinned. Therefore, or it says then, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if the law is done away, and we live under grace only, and all we have to do is accept the name of the Lord more or less and be nice, then why do we need grace? in a time of need. What creates need for grace? He just talked about it. He was tempted like we are. He didn't sin. We did sin. And it is our sin that causes us to have a need and we are to be able to go boldly to Him because His blood was shed for us so that we might be forgiven and therefore might enter into life. Because we do not have to pay the penalty for sin, which is death. The second death. Obtain mercy. How do you obtain mercy? Through his sacrifice. So he encapsulates the whole, the whole subject of law and grace right here. You break the law, you need grace. It creates a time of need for you. And you go to him who died for you and who never sinned. His life paid the penalty for yours and mine, our sins. Which is the transgression of the law. The New Testament talks a lot about sin, doesn't it? Right here. All right, let's go to Hebrews 8. Well, I want to go back first of all, before we hit that, let's go back to where this came from. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 8 is a quote from right here. Again, Jeremiah was a man of God, and he is a man whom God inspired to write prophecies for today. Now, he was sitting in the middle of the Old Covenant, uh, the covenant of blessing that had been given to Israel from God at Sinai. <coughs> but here he says, <coughs> verse 31. Well, let's ver- notice verse 30. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity, his own sin. Okay, the penalty of sin is death, right here. Every man that eats the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on age. Behold, the days come, says the eternal... That I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And how was that covenant consummated? By the giving of the Ten Commandments. Okay. How were they given? On a tablet of stone. That stone is still in the Ark of the Covenant. Revelation 11 says that it will appear when Christ returns. Last verse of Revelation 11. He will bring reward to the saints, the prophets, and so on, and the heavens will be opened and the ark of God will appear. Now, isn't that interesting in light of what Jim Rector and John Reitenbaugh said about the symbolism of the things put in the ark of the covenant? Manna, which represents Christ. The law, which represents what is needed to help us toward salvation, toward Christ, to heal the breach, the schoolmaster, if you will. Aaron's rod that budded. Those things are going to come to pass. Alright, that Ark of the Covenant was created after the pattern and the Garden of Eden, which is after the pattern of the heavenly Jerusalem. This all ties together. Why would the ark of God containing the Ten Commandments come down from heaven when Christ returns? Because this thing goes all the way back to Genesis 2. That's why. With the two trees. Those two trees are rooted in righteousness. And both are good trees. Because they tell you, one tells you, the difference between good and evil. And since man sinned, you really need to know what that is, don't you? Because only the good are going to be in the kingdom and the evil are not. So that which delineates and defines what is evil is a very good thing. Otherwise, you wouldn't know what evil was. They didn't know. And suddenly they did. And what did they suffer? Was the knowledge what hurt them? No, it was the breaking, it was the transgression that hurt them. Not the law, but suddenly their eyes were opened to what's good and what's bad. Wouldn't it have been nice to have lived on and on and on and never know any evil? If we keep the laws of God perfectly, which we will do as immortal spirit beings, that's the whole point is not to have anyone ever break the first and great commandment again. And if he can know and know that he knows that you will never break the first and great commandment, you will be in the kingdom of God. And if he thinks you would break the commandments, you will not be in the kingdom of God. It's that simple, based on the words of Christ himself to the disciples and recorded for you and me. All right. Not according to the covenant in the land of Egypt. He said, well, that was the law. Well, okay, that's fine. Which my covenant they broke. What did they break? The law. Although I was a husband to them, says the Eternal, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Eternal, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. It's not just written on stones. Now through the Holy Spirit, he said it would be written in our hearts and our minds. It doesn't just need to be in Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20 or on your doorpost. It's in your heart and mind now through the Holy Spirit. It's even more invasive, if you will, than it was before. Now you can't even think evil, much less do evil. Both are wrong. Now, he quotes that here in Hebrews 8. Now, this was written, Jeremiah was writing till later on, in that day, after Christ would come. And after he returns again, it's going to be even more so. But he's, he's already given you and me what he's going to give the rest of the world when he returns. So the new covenant is now what we are living under and by. And now the law is not just to be on stones or on your doorposts, it's to be in your heart and mind. Much deeper. Jeremiah 8, verse 10. Uh, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the eternal. I will put my laws into their heart and mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to be a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, "Know the Lord, they'll all know me. And I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He will forgive them through the blood of Christ. Extend grace to people who do not deserve it. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. He talks about the physical ordinances Of the pattern. And he shows that now the pattern is being recreated in our hearts and minds, our lives, as the temple of God. What was intrinsic to the Holy of Holies? And we're supposed to enter the Holy of Holies, aren't we? When Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent in two and gave us access to the Holy of Holies for the first time. What was in the Holy of Holies that's patterned after heavenly things? The ark of God containing the Ten Commandments, among other things. It is part and parcel and germane to the new covenant. The commandments are not new. Satan broke them long before man ever occurred, and he came to know the difference between good and evil. And man had that placed before him and said, don't go that way, it is not a good way to go. Now, you're learning good. Does that produce good things in your life? Yes, it does. You also know a lot of evil, and that creates a lot of frustration in your life. Wouldn't you and I be better off today if Adam and Eve and no one ever partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obviously so. If they hadn't broken the first and great commandment, we would be better off. But they did. And suddenly evil came upon them and has come upon every one of us ever since. We got to get that fixed. The breach has to be healed. We have to become at one as the Father and the Son are at one. Chapter 10 of Hebrews. Well, I guess I'm already there. I was reading 8. He says in chapter 8, verse 10, that, and then he repeats it again in chapter 10. uh, Verse 16, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days. I'll put my law in their mind. These I'll remember no more. Therefore, have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Emmanuel. Where do we enter? The holy of holies, where the commandments are. Through the blood of Christ, which forgives our sin and gives us access to the most holy. God the Father. If your commandment breaking is not forgiven, you cannot know the Father. And if you continue to disobey the commandments of God, you will never be allowed into the Holy of Holies. He will not hear your prayers. There is a deep breach between you and God. That's why I have to pray and you have to pray every day, Father, forgive me through the blood of my Savior. It isn't once saved, always saved. We pray daily. We come boldly to the throne of grace to enter into the Holy of Holies, which we can only enter if our sin is forgiven, and that gives us access to God so that He will hear our prayers. Well, I'm just about out of time, so I think I'm going to stop right there, and I will attempt then to finish next week. We'll see how it goes.